If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. I am Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things for Slate. And since our last show, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson has not only sailed through to confirmation, but she managed to do so with some Republican votes. And on top of that, polling suggests she may prove to be the most popular Supreme Court nominee slash confirmed justice in modern history. Now, history may also recall that the effort to smear her largely failed in the long run, but boy, oh boy, the stupid was strong throughout this process. Constitutionally unsound rulings like Griswold versus Connecticut, Kelo versus City of New London, and NFIB versus Sebelius confused Tennesseans and left Congress wondering who gave the court permission to bypass our system of checks and balances? So you would be okay with the Supreme Court leaving the question of interracial marriage to the states? Yes, I think that that's something that uh, if you're not wanting the Supreme Court to weigh in on issues like that, uh, you're not going to be able to have your cake and eat it too. I think that's hypocritical. When the Supreme Court creates a right that is not even mentioned in the Constitution, the independence and the legitimacy of the Supreme Court itself is called into question. Griswold versus Connecticut. Well, you can list a whole host of issues when it comes down to whatever they are. uh, I'm going to say that they're not going to all make you happy uh, within a given state, but that we're better off having states manifest their points of view rather than homogenizing it across the country as Roe versus Wade did. A judge must call balls and strikes. And given what I've seen, and her unwillingness to disclose her judicial philosophy and a disavow and expansionist view of unenumerated rights, I have concerns that Judge Jackson will be pinch-hitting for one team or the other. In other news, talk of reforming the Supreme Court's ethics rules heated up after revelations about Clarence Thomas's wife's text messaging spree around the January 6th insurrection, and the court handed down some major decisions in a couple of important cases this week. We're going to conceive of this show as our great big legal history show. And that's because later on, we're going to take a closer look at the story behind the filibuster and how so many of our current notions about its purpose and its history are just plain wrong. For Slate Plus members, Mark Joseph Stern will join us for our usual chat 
about the legal news that didn't make it into the main show, including another major shadow docket decision on the Clean Water Act this week, and a surprising case creating a new constitutional bar against malicious prosecution. That conversation with Mark can only be accessed by Slate Plus members. If you'd like to join us and have access to bonus segments from lots of your favorite Slate shows, completely ad-free episodes, and never hit a paywall for any of Slate's articles, go to slate.com slash amicus plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash amicus plus. And as ever, thank you so much for supporting the work we do. But before we say goodbye forever to the Katanji Brown-Jackson hearings, there's one not trivial point that warrants revisiting on this show. With an almost unerring eye for scoring big talking points, many Republican senators spent the hearings taking pot shots at the idea of unenumerated rights, substantive due process, not just abortion, but the liberty interests that underpin Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, but also Obergefell versus Hodges and Griswold. Here's John Cornyn saying just a whole bunch of this. Do you share my concern that when the court takes on the role of identifying an unenumerated right, in other words, it's not mentioned in the Constitution, and creates a new right, declaring that anything conflicting with that is unconstitutional, that it creates a circumstance where those who may hold traditional beliefs like something as important as marriage, that they will be um, vilified as unwilling to assent to this new orthodoxy. And Senate Democrats did almost nothing, at least to my eyes, to push back on this narrative. And in doing almost nothing, they allowed these talking points that surfaced, by the way, at the Supreme Court in oral arguments in Dobbs, that's the 15-week abortion case that's still pending, they allow these ideas to become ever more firmly entrenched in the political discourse. Now, look, maybe it doesn't matter. Dobbs is probably going to be the end of abortion anyway in half the states. And nobody really wants to put marriage equality or anti-miscegenation laws back on trial, right? Well... Maybe. So my guest today is David Gans. He's director of the Human Rights, Civil Rights, and Citizenship Program at the Constitutional Accountability Center. And if that sounds a bit familiar, it's because we spoke to his colleague Elizabeth Wydra last fall. The CAC argues for embracing originalism, but doing it to achieve progressive outcomes. And David seems to be disinclined to just cede all the ground <laughs> that I just laid out on unenumerated rights and substantive due process. I think he's not willing for all of us to think about these as just invented rights that hippies who'd been just sniffing too much living constitutionalism in the 60s made up. So David's brand new law review piece is called Reproductive Originalism, Why the 14th Amendment's Original Meaning Protects the Right to Abortion. And David, welcome to Amicus. Thanks so much, Dahlia. So I think I want to start by just asking you if my initial framing is correct, and that insofar as these confirmation hearings aren't just to achieve a confirmation, but are kind of messaging wars about how you think about the Constitution, it's a mistake to say that going after unenumerated rights, going after substantive due process is just 
wordplay, that there's a, a game here and the game is to roll back rights and rolling back those rights does not begin or end with abortion. Uh, I do think that's right. Conservatives, both on the court and in the conservative legal movement and in the Senate, want to roll back a century of constitutional jurisprudence that recognizes that the 14th Amendment broadly protects fundamental rights that are inherent in autonomy, dignity, and equal citizenship. And they're not limited to rights that are set forth in the four corners of the Constitution's text that comes directly out of the Constitution's text and history. And it's reflected in Supreme Court decisions going back over a century, protecting rights to be a parent, rights to marry a loved one, rights to raise one's children according to one's values, rights to access contraceptives, rights to choose whether or not to have children, and including the rights to have an abortion. And from the point of view of conservatives, and we saw this repeatedly at Judge Jackson's hearings, these are all made-up rights. Senator Kennedy sort of said, this is just policymaking, and that's really deeply wrong as a matter of the 14th Amendment. This conservative attack on unenumerated rights, this idea that if it's not written in the text, it can't be a fundamental right, is deeply problematic in many ways as a matter of the entire history of our Constitution. It goes back to debates at the founding over should there be a Bill of Rights? And one of the concern was, look, if you try and list all the rights that are protected, you're not going to get them all. There's a wonderful quote from James Iredell, who was a very prominent member of the founding generation, later served on the Supreme Court, that says, make whatever list you want. I'll immediately name 20 or 30 that aren't listed there. So there was this idea, you can't capture everything. And the Ninth Amendment doesn't protect unenumerated rights, but it sort of sets out this rule of construction. Just because it's not listed doesn't mean it's not a protected right. And in the piece that you mentioned, what I talk about is two big influences at the time of the drafting of the 14th Amendment. And the first and most important is the Declaration of Independence. The framers who write the 14th Amendment view the Declaration of Independence as the touchstone. This was the thing that was key to the American ideals of freedom of equality, and it was essentially buried because of slavery. And so the idea behind the 14th Amendment is to restore the Declaration. And they call the 14th Amendment the gem of the Constitution, and it's because it's going to write the Declaration into the Constitution. The Declaration speaks broadly of inalienable rights. It doesn't try and list what those rights are. The 14th Amendment does the same thing. It talks about privileges, immunities of citizenship. It talks about guaranteeing liberty without due process of law. It guarantees equal protection of the laws. It doesn't try and enumerate the rights that it sought to protect out of this recognition that no possible set of rights would be exhaustive. And in those debates, they look back to the Ninth Amendment and they say the Ninth Amendment completed the document. It ensured that all fundamental rights would be guaranteed. And there's a second point that gets to why the text and history protects unenumerated rights. Now, the 14th Amendment emerges out of the crucible of slavery, and it defines the promise of freedom. It's trying to guarantee those fundamental rights that had been long denied to those held in bondage. And in the debates, they're looking back at what did it mean to be denied freedom, to be held in slavery? And many of those 
key rights were not rights that were enumerated in the Constitution. Many of them were, like freedom of speech, protection against unreasonable search and seizures were key to the Bill of Rights, but many of them weren't. And what were some of those rights? The right to marry. Slave people had no right to marry at all. Frederick Douglass says, this is a nation that boasts of liberty, but three million people have no right to marry. The right to start a family, choose who's in your family, that was all impossible under slavery. Children were treated as a commodity. They could be bought and sold. They could be separated. Parents had no right to care for their children. So these fundamental rights are very deeply rooted in the history of the 14th Amendment. After the slave trade closed, a key to the expansion of slavery was the idea that the slave system would replicate itself through forced procreation, through rape, through forced enslaved women to procreate with other slaves, you know, as a matter of coercion and, and the violence inherent in that. And these were not kind of peripheral parts of slavery. These were viewed as kind of the core evil, and they were central to the abolitionist critique of slavery that that helped change the Constitution that led first to the 13th Amendment and then to the 14th Amendment. And you can sort of chart the progress of the idea that these are fundamental rights throughout these debates. When the 13th Amendment is debated, a number of the members of Congress during the debate sort of say, you know, under slavery, an enslaved person couldn't say, my home, my wife, my body. These were all fundamental rights, and they are fundamental because they had been denied under slavery. One of the things you see on the court today is conservatives take this view that we can't figure out what is a fundamental right unless it's listed. So the answer is, we're going to say, if it's in the text, it counts. Otherwise, it's not going to be protected or we'll devise a set of tests that are so onerous that no right will qualify as fundamental unless it's listed in the text. Let me stop you for one second because I want to get to it, but I want to try to see this through the eyes of John Cornyn before we do. And I, I think the question that I have for you is that it seems like when he talks, he's doing a, a couple of kind of smoke and mirrors moves. The Constitution doesn't mention anything about substance when it talks about due process. The four. 14th Amendment and the Fifth Amendment don't talk about substantive due process. It talks about due process of law. Correct? Correct. So can you just walk us through on this first piece of it, the difference between substantive and procedural due process so that folks can kind of hone in on what the move is when you start to say there's no such thing as substantive due process at all? Sure. But so I, I want to sort of back up Part of the story goes back to the fact that kind of a very key piece of the 14th Amendment, which was the Privileges or Immunities Clause that says no state shall enforce a law that denies the privileges and immunities of citizens, that was essentially stripped out of the Constitution very early on in 1873 in a case called the Slaughterhouse Cases that kind of removed the language of the 14th Amendment that seems to very clearly protect substantive fundamental rights. And since then, many have pushed, both on the left and the right, for the court to restore that in line with its text and history. But the court has never done that. 
And instead, the due process clause has done the work of protecting fundamental rights. And the response often from conservatives like Senator Cornyn is to sort of say, well, due process seems to be more about ensuring fair procedures, and it doesn't make sense to use it to protect fundamental rights from denial by the states. And so essentially what the court has done is to enforce the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, the guarantee of fundamental rights that are at its core, by using the due process clause. Because as late as 2010, a case called McDonald, there was a big push to use the Privileged Immunities Clause, which is the clause that the text in history says is the one that protects fundamental rights. And the response was, there's too much water under the bridge. We've used the due process clause for over a century. And as a matter of precedent, even though we get the force of history, we're going to continue with that approach. And so that is the approach that the entire court has used. In that case, Justice Scalia sort of said, you're going to be the darling of the professoriate for pushing privileges and immunities, but we're not going to do it. And now you see conservatives sort of turning around and saying, well, if we're focusing on due process, that seems like an odd way to protect substantive fundamental rights. And we should note that was a gun case, right? I mean, that's the, the irony here, is that that was a gun case that was extending Heller. And in that, Justice Scalia, given the invitation to just completely scuttle the notion of substantive due process once and for all, avoids doing exactly that, right? Right. It gets to what we talked about earlier, when it's a right that you can say it's in the text, they say, yes, this is a fundamental right. It applies not only to the federal government, which the Second Amendment did, but it also applies to the states under the 14th Amendment, under the rubric of substantive due process. So the court recognizes substantive due process, and some protection of fundamental rights is deeply rooted in the text and history. And in that case, the majority kind of goes through the history that looks at protecting the individual right to bear arms, which is a huge issue at the time of the 14th Amendment because white militias were trying to take away guns from those freed from bondage, which was their only means of defending themselves. There was wide-scale violence, and having a gun for protection was critical to living. And so that was a, a key issue that was debated and you know, in that case, they sort of go through the history. But what the history shows is protection of fundamental rights was deeply ingrained in the 14th Amendment and can't be limited to rights that are listed in the four corners of the document, because many of the fundamental rights that were discussed at the time of the 14th Amendment were rights that did not appear anywhere in the Constitution's text, but were critical to liberty, equality and equal citizenship. If we're going to be completely precise here, and what I really want is precision, you've walked us through unenumerated rights and fundamental rights. You've walked us through substantive and procedural due process. And then we've played a little bit of John Cornyn, who seems to sort of take all that into a big blob of Play-Doh and dump it in front of Judge Jackson and say, all of this stuff is fundamentally interchangeable. And I'm going to go further than, as you just noted, the Supreme Court is willing to go by saying there's actually no such thing as substantive due process. And I'm going to go further than the Supreme Court has been willing to go and say any unenumerated right 
is garbage. And then he just hands that to her and says, fight me, right? I mean, that's essentially the slippage here is being really fast and loose, both with what the court has done on the sort of line of substantive due process and on the line of unenumerated rights. I think what we've seen from nominees is a reluctance to sort of debate first principles with the senators that are asking their questions. And so she appropriately recognized that there has been a century of jurisprudence using the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and recognizing that at the core of the 14th Amendment is a guarantee that certain fundamental rights will be protected. One of the things that's absolutely crucial in understanding this debate is the rights that are the subject of the court's substantive due process jurisprudence, which conservatives view as invented rights, all come from the very rights that were at the core of the 14th Amendment, the right to be a parent, the right to marry a loved one, the right to choose whether or not to bear and raise children. Those were all fundamental rights that were denied to the enslaved people And when the 14th Amendment was debated, the framers recognized what definition of freedom exists that does not include all these things. And so you look at the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, it lines up almost perfectly with the list of fundamental rights that were long denied enslaved people and were key to their freedom that the 14th Amendment sought to guarantee and secure. We are going to take a quick break to hear from some of our sponsors. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's head back to our conversation with David Gans. He's director of the Human Rights, Civil Rights, and Citizenship Program at the Constitutional Accountability Center. And we're going to look in more detail at basic rights that are being swept into the maybe pile by new conservative claims about policymaking from the bench. Can you talk for a minute, David, about what it means when, in addition to this move of sort of saying anything that wasn't explicitly written in the Constitution is not protected, and it's all just invented on the fly by unelected majorities on uh, Supreme Court. In addition to that, there was a real effort to lash the idea of substantive due process and unenumerated rights to the evils of Plessy versus Ferguson, of Dred Scott, to Lochner and the Lochner line of cases. Can you help pick apart what is happening when uh, the claim is made that everything bad that's actually ever happened in history is as a result of these ideas of unenumerated rights and substantive due process? So a familiar critique from the dire opponents of substantive process is the whole thing is corrupt root and branch. It started with Dred Scott because the more famous holding of Dred Scott was that black persons could never be citizens under the Constitution. And therefore, Dred Scott had no right to sue. 
They then went on and said that slave owners had a right that was protected by the Due Process Clause to take their slaves from slave territory into free territory. And they invalidated the, the Missouri Compromise that had prevented that. Then in the Lochner era, the Supreme Court used the Due Process Clause as a way to second-guess the wisdom of social and economic legislation in a way that had no constitutional foundation. In the Lochner case, it was a maximum hour laws. There were lots of other cases where the court struck down minimum wage laws. And then in the New Deal, Lochner was overturned. One of the big problems with Lochner was it sort of ignored that there was a kind of crucial balance between the claimed individual right and the need to regulate social and economic conditions to protect workers and safeguard their health, which the court in case after case ignored. As part of the Lochner era, the court also started putting its due process precedent on a somewhat firmer footing. The Lochner era also gives us some of the first, I sort of talk about them as rights of heart and home because it's about the right to love, the right to form a home, the right to have children decide to raise those children that kind of grows out of the Lochner era and then is further developed in the Warren Court, protecting access to contraceptives in the Griswold case, protecting the right to marry a, a loved one of another race in the Loving case, and then becomes the basis for Roe in 1973. So there's a part of the Lochner era court that everyone views as illegitimate, but there's also a part of the Lochner era court that is the beginnings of this recognition that these rights of heart and home are fundamental, are guaranteed. And some of those cases are the ones from the Lochner era. There's a case, Meyer versus Nebraska, about the right of parents of German descent to have their child learn German in schools. There's another case, Pierce in 1925, about the right of parents to send their uh, child to a private school rather than a public school. Of the entire line of 14th Amendment unenumerated fundamental rights, those are probably the ones that get the most respect. But again, if you take the view of where is it written in the text, then there's nowhere in the text that talks about the right of parents to raise their child and ensure their child can go to private school or learn German. But these are fundamental rights. And one of the reasons you can see them as fundamental is, one, the family is kind of a foundational unit to our society. But two, the 14th Amendment is a moment where we recognize these are fundamental rights because that's the difference between being enslaved and being free. You could control your family. And I think the justices are concerned. We can't have a subjective basis. It can't just be what right feels important or sensitive. But this is a way that looks at our history and says, this was the difference between slavery and freedom. It was about control over your family, the right to marry a loved one, the right to decide whether to bear and raise children, the right not to have your children separated from you at the whim of another. These were rights that were fundamental as a matter of dignity, autonomy, and equal citizenship. One of the reasons I was really struck reading your law review is that if you are an American right now and you are pushing against school mask mandates in COVID or you are pushing to control what books your child checks out of the library or whether they learn critical race theory. A lot of those ideas about 
how I send my kid to school, what she learns at school, how much control I have over their freedom and education. Those are all in that bucket of rights you just described. I mean, there's a deep irony here that the same people like Senator Cornyn and Senator Kennedy, who are fighting to the teeth against your interpretation of what the 14th Amendment sets out to protect all of these heart and home and control of children and family autonomy are actually exactly that bucket of rights that I would think the conservative legal movement would be embracing right now. And you even saw this dynamic play out in Dobbs when Justice Amy Coney Barrett suggested there was no problem forcing pregnant persons to carry a pregnancy to term because they could simply surrender their child at birth. But, you know, vaccines... She, she she sort of said, oh, that's that's kind of a bodily integrity issue. So there's kind of a, a selectivity about when the right really counts. And I think I want to talk about Griswold for one little second, because you mentioned that Griswold is the attempt to bring all this together into the realm of, you know, the right of married couples to use birth control and Maybe part of the original sin that we should talk about is the way that opinion is written. It's written in in such a way that it really does, I think, become a parody of what, you know, <laughs> judicial activism might become, that there's a way in which if Griswold had been written in a more kind of expressly text-based, expressly crisp, clear, coherent way, we would not now be doing this work of backfilling what it was that the right purported to protect. Am I being unfair? No, I think that's right. I think the sort of penumbral arguments that Justice Douglas invoked in his opinion has done a lot of damage. If you look at the opinions, there were a lot of different opinions and lots of different takes, some just emphasizing this is a very destructive imposition on liberty and, you know, really for no sort of valuable social goal. And it's basically a dead letter in the state. And so if you're balancing liberty and the state interest, liberty wins by a mile. That was the approach that Justice White took. But I, I do think the penumbral basis made it very easy to caricature as this idea, you're just making it up. There has definitely been a shift. You can look back at a number of fairly recent confirmation hearings where nominees steered very far clear of Roe, but they were willing to say Griswold was right. And here, you know, you have Senator Blackburn saying Griswold was wrong. We've already seen an attack on access to contraceptives in Hobby Lobby. You know, precedents around Griswold will be part of this coming wave of attacks on basic rights that the court has long protected. So actually, this gets to, I guess, what I think is my tactic or strategy question, right? We have briefs in the Dobbs case that are already saying, hey, once you're going after substantive due process, let's just be really clear that Obergefell is also on very thin ice. And as you just suggested, you know, we've seen attacks 
from various states on Griswold. We've got, I think, all three of the attorney general candidates in Michigan saying there's no right to use contraception rooted in Griswold because there's no privacy right in Griswold that's real. So I think one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was, you know, I'm sure you had this conversation many times the week of the hearing, too, when you did media. But the answer to that that you get from the left is, oh, come on, nobody's going after contraception. Come on. You know, Americans firmly, firmly support marriage equality. There's no possibility that these are on the hook. And I think I have a two-part question for you. One is, Americans also support Roe. That's immaterial. (laughs) The fact that Americans may be robustly in favor of contraception and the right to contraception or marriage equality doesn't mean that they are necessarily secure constitutionally. But more importantly, doesn't it mean that seeding this ground around Roe just unerringly means that the court has reasons to to suggest that everything that followed Roe, including Lawrence versus Texas, including Obergefell, is similarly fair game? So one, I do think many of the arguments that are being made in Dobbs are arguments that, if accepted, would destroy much of the line of fundamental rights protections that are deeply rooted in the 14th Amendment. And so let me explain that. One of the arguments that Mississippi makes in Dobbs is the right to abortion can't be fundamental because we look at state practice in 1868 and abortion was outlawed. And so how can it possibly be a fundamental right? And that's the same argument that was made in Obergefell. Same-sex marriage wasn't allowed in 1868. So how can it be a fundamental right? Scalia's dissent in that case basically said that and said, that's the end. That's the case. Like, this is easy. There's no possible way this can be a matter of fundamental liberty. The problem is, that's also the argument against the fundamental rights holding and loving, which is viewed as one of those precedents that, you know, if your theory doesn't explain loving or brown, then that's a problem with your theory. In the piece, I sort of look at what Judge Roberts, then ultimately Chief Justice Roberts, said in his confirmation hearing where he said, looking to state practice to define the meaning of the limits on states is really circular. So you can't say it's constitutional because they've done it. The question is, is it constitutional? And he said, in Loving, the court looked at whether the right to marry was fundamental, and it recognized it was. I think the opinion didn't need to, but it could have rooted it in the fact that at the time of the 14th Amendment, The right to marry was celebrated by Black people as a core central part of their freedom. This was one of the fundamental denials that they couldn't have a family. A couple could always be sold away. So the right to marry was very fundamental. And so in Loving, the court said it's fundamental. The fact that states have prescribed it doesn't make it constitutional. And there's kind of a broader point, which is, the whole point of the 14th Amendment was a response to decades and decades of suppression of fundamental rights. So the idea that you would just say, well, we're going to define what the 14th Amendment means by looking to what states did at the time kind of turns it on its head. This was the argument that then Justice Rehnquist made in Roe. It's been made, you know, in many different ways in other cases since. And it's sort of a theory that's used to ensure that this entire line of 
cases would come out the other way. And you can even look at Griswold. That was a law that was passed in 1879. So if you're looking at the age of state practice, there would be a strong argument that restrictions on contraception would be fine. And the other side says we're doing originalism, but as a matter of originalism, it's perverted. School segregation laws were on the books. All sorts of of denials of fundamental rights and discriminations existed at the time of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment wasn't trying to lock those in. It didn't enact a list of results. It enacted these fundamental principles that fundamental rights would be respected, equality under the law, equal citizenship stature. These are kind of the fundamental points. So so what you're saying is that when John Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, accuses... Uh, liberal justices of picking and choosing which unenumerated rights are fundamental, they're also picking and choosing which rights at the time of the 14th Amendment they think are the ones that are enshrined for all time and which can go to, so that there's picking and choosing going in both directions. It's not really a matter of picking and choosing. If you look at the history The rights that we're fighting about, the right to marry a loved one, was viewed as fundamental. The question now is, can you discriminate as to who gets to marry? And then you have both the force of the Constitution's guarantee of fundamental rights and its protection of equality that I think strongly supports what the court did in Loving, what the court did in Obergefell, and other cases. So the rights that are viewed as invented are, in fact, have a very strong foundation in the 14th Amendment and in the rights that had long been denied to enslaved persons. And if you start with that extremely strong foundation, it protects the rights that are at issue. I admit there wasn't any discussion at the time of the 14th Amendment of abortion, but once you recognize bodily integrity, the right to choose your family, the right to decide whether to bear and raise children, There's no daylight between those rights that are deeply rooted and the right to abortion. We've talked quite a lot about Griswold, and we've talked about the ways in which when folks say, oh, you know, the line between contraception and abortion is a really clear, coherent line, and no one's going after contraception. But as you noted, Hobby Lobby, as you noted, there's certainly been... uh, Trump nominees to the federal bench who are opposed to IVF, who are opposed to uh, surrogacy. And, you know, as I mentioned, people running for elected office who are saying that there is no constitutional right to birth control. So can you talk for a minute about whether there is, in fact, a bright line between contraception and abortion in either the doctrine or in the attacks? I think the line is is notoriously fuzzy. The Hobby Lobby case illustrated that. In that case, the owners of a secular nonprofit argued that they were entitled to a religious exemption and, and won at the Supreme Court on the claim that they didn't have to include in their health insurance coverage certain contraceptives because they viewed those as resulting in abortions. And so if Roe falls in the Dobbs case or some other case down the road, you could easily see states criminalizing certain forms of contraception on the same theory. So I think attacks on contraception, we're already seeing them now, and they can't be written off in the future. And can you talk for a minute, because I think this was a 
again, in your piece, so illuminating for me, that the slippage of starting to talk about fetal personhood and the idea that not only was abortion not explicitly protected anywhere, you know, in the States at the time of the 14th Amendment, but that there is now this imported value of, you know, a fetus is a person and that somehow impliedly is something that should be protected. I want you to talk for a minute, if you would, about, you know, what your research shows about why it was that women's reproductive rights were so heavily regulated at the time of the 14th Amendment. It's not because there was a belief that the fetus was a person. It's that they were trying very, very hard to control women's bodies, right? Right. If you look from the founding on, if you look at the common law, which is often a source of wisdom to conservative justices on the court. There are many cases where they say, let's see what the common law did. So the common law with respect to abortion was abortion wasn't a crime until the moment of quickening, which was the first time that a woman would feel the movement of the fetus. And that was generally around 16 to 18 weeks, but it wasn't exact. It was it differed when the individual woman actually felt the movement. The common law said before that, there's no precedent that makes abortion a crime. So abortion was legal throughout the first trimester through a good part of the second trimester until quickening whenever it arose. And if you look at the historical work on abortion, abortion was one of the first medical practices that was the subject of specialization and expertise. What happened in the middle of the 19th century was this shift that was this legislative campaign that was pushed by physicians. And the physicians didn't like the quickening line. They sought to ban abortion throughout pregnancy, but the arguments were about controlling women. The idea that was also very popular with the Supreme Court of the time that it was uh, women's God-given duty to bear and raise children. They viewed abortion as destructive to uh, women's health. And they were not concerned about all women. They were mostly concerned about white women who were not having children while immigrant populations were exploding. And so you look at 1867, which I, I cite in, in the piece, there's an Ohio committee that's considering an abortion ban. They say the question of abortion is whether the population will be our children or those of aliens. And so in the last part of the paper, I look at this history and I, I take a look at fetal personhood, because one of the big arguments driving the case is the idea that the interest of the fetus has to be dominant. And so there are some who think the fetus should be considered a person under the Constitution and have rights of its own. Roe rejected that, and no justice has questioned that. During the Dobbs argument, Justice Kavanaugh asked Mississippi's attorney general about that. He said, we don't take that position. Um, and I think you see when the 14th Amendment says who are citizens, it's persons who were born or naturalized. There are a number of provisions that would make little sense if they applied to fetuses. So when we take the census, we don't take a head count of fetuses at the time. They're not treated as persons in that way. The view that they should be persons under the 14th Amendment has no takers on the court. Not even Mississippi would go that far. And I think this is important because Justice Kavanaugh sort of said, well, we have to be neutral. And on one side, you have the pregnant person who has who's fully entitled to liberty and equal citizenship. On the other side, 
everyone in Dobbs agrees that that the fetus is not a person in the contemplation of the Constitution. And so then I look, even if it's not a person, should it be considered a, a compelling state interest? And what the history shows is, it, from the founding through the mid-19th century, it wasn't viewed as a compelling state interest. And when states moved to ban abortions, it was based on these gendered and racist views that said it was a woman's duty to give birth and anything that interfered with that would bring ruin on the nation. And that's not the stuff that compelling state interests are made of. So I think if you look at sort of the history of abortion regulation, it really undercuts the idea that you can say that there's a compelling state interest that allows the state to completely extinguish the fundamental rights that the 14th Amendment protects. And the late, great Walter Dellinger wrote this piece in the late 80s that I relied on where he, he said, you know, could a state say, well, pregnant women have to be on bed rest the last three months because they might miscarry and we would lose life. And if you take the view that it's a compelling state interest, you're sort of forced to this idea that the capacity to become pregnant means that we have two tiers of citizenship, which is exactly what the 14th Amendment disallows. So I just want to be super, super clear about what you're saying, because I think it's important and I think it really didn't get said, or like I didn't hear it, David, at Judge Jackson's hearings, which is really the only way to look at the 14th Amendment is constructing a new notion of freedom post-chattel slavery that defines anything that is a part of chattel slavery as fundamentally unfree. And so the whole notion that we determine for slaves who they reproduce with and how they reproduce and whether they can marry and how many children they have, all of that is by definition unfreedom. All of that is by de definition ignored in the Bill of Rights. And that you are starting from the presumption that if you don't look at that bucket of freedoms, what you call, you know, home and heart, the ability to make your own decisions about what you do with your body, how you raise your children, who you marry, how many children you have, if you don't look at that as a direct response to chattel slavery, you're missing the point of the 14th Amendment. And I think that the only other kind of coda I want to let you talk about for a second is, you know, as it felt like Senate Democrats were ceding all this ground <laughs> of what you've mentioned, privileges and immunities, gone. Substantive due process, on the ropes. To cede the ground of substantive due process and unenumerated rights and privacy and family autonomy and bodily autonomy is to say, that's okay, we still have the Equal Protection Clause. <laughs> we have the Equal Protection Clause, so we're going to be okay. And I want you to just maybe, if, if you can take us out on the answer to the question, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe we don't need all these uh, privacy rights and liberty rights and uh, bodily autonomy rights and family rights because we have equal protection and that is going to protect all the other rights that are protected under sort of the auspices of Griswold and Roe. What's the answer to that? I mean, so one, I do think when the attack that we're seeing both on and off the court on recognition of basic fundamental rights that are not enumerated in the four corners of the document misses a key part of what the 14th Amendment is all about. These elements of bondage, of what it meant not to be free were central to the abolitionist critique that changed the Constitution. And you can draw the line through the abolitionist movement, 
to the 13th Amendment, to the 14th Amendment, all these places, they're arguing about these rights of hardened home. So what I think you're seeing a lot is kind of a selective originalism that is ignoring huge swaths of the 14th Amendment. These rights are directly provided. They're clearly rooted in the history and context and responding to the abuses of slavery. We've talked a little bit less about bodily integrity, but slavery was sort of the the total abnegation of bodily integrity. And to guarantee freedom without guaranteeing bodily integrity would have been illusory. That is the very core. The right to the body was there before, but it really comes out of the experience of the violence against um, Black bodies during slavery and then afterwards. The genius of the 14th Amendment is its overlapping guarantees, all in the aim of equal citizenship, procedural fairness when you're hailed before the state, uh, guarantees of fundamental rights, guarantees of equality under the law. The Equal Protection Clause is an incredibly important part of the 14th Amendment. But even there, conservatives take a very narrow view of what equality means. Although the language is sweeping and universal and it guarantees equal protection for all persons, the track record there is also fraught. You can look at the dissents in the Doma case, in Obergefell, even in cases like uh, U.S. versus Virginia, the conservative view, which is deeply wrong on equal protection, is that it's about race and nothing else. If it's not classifying based on race, then, i.e. affirmative action, then states have latitude to treat people differently, even for deeply problematic, discriminatory, prejudicial reasons. The history of the 14th Amendment sort of shows stripping out its core components can't be justified simply because there are other guarantees left. They're all kind of crucial to equal citizenship. So I think it would be very dangerous to say, well, we're not so concerned about the court watering down the promise of freedom at the core of the 14th Amendment because there's still equality left when the justices on the Supreme Court have been reticent of reading the text of the Equal Protection Clause to, in fact, protect equality under the law for all persons. David Gans is director of the Human Rights, Civil Rights, and Citizenship Program at the Constitutional Accountability Center. His brand new law review piece is called Reproductive Originalism, Why the 14th Amendment's Original Meaning Protects the Right to Abortion. I cannot thank you enough for coming onto the show and really taking us through step-by-step something that I think kind of was a bomb that was detonated at this hearing and that not a lot of us except maybe you threw their bodies on top of. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Dahlia. I really enjoyed it. Hey folks, I'm Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney in Manhattan. On my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, I break down legal topics shaping today's news. And I'm joined by thought leaders to explore topics at the intersection of power, policy, and justice. In our increasingly complex world, Clarity can feel elusive. My goal is to empower listeners with knowledge and insight during these transformative times. So I hope you'll join me every Monday and Thursday on Stay Tuned. Search for and follow Stay Tuned on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay informed. Stay empowered. Stay tuned. There are a few bizarre aspects of the United States constitutional setup 
that we flick at sometimes on this show. One is the fundamentally counter-majoritarian nature of the Senate. The other is this growing tension between a Supreme Court that demands specificity and constant updating in legislation that's on a collision course with the Congress that doesn't much care to pass laws anymore. So we're going to turn to that problem right now and the mechanism that scuppers so much legislation, the filibuster. The fight over the filibuster reached a kind of frenzy earlier this year when the battle to protect voting rights ended with a whimper in the face of Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema's refusal to blow it up. We touched on the problems of the filibuster in an episode with our friends Adam Gentleson and Ellie Mistal last summer, but we wanted to dig a little bit more into the history today and the claims about the history, especially after I listened to the Throughline podcast episode on the filibuster. It's called Pirates of the Senate, and to do that digging, I'm joined by Rund Abdelfatah. She is co-host and producer of Throughline, and it's a podcast that explores the history of current events. The concept for Throughline, which was launched in February 2019, was developed by Rund and her co-host, Ramtin Arablui. So first and foremost, welcome to Amicus. Thanks for having me. And can we just start with the what is the sort of broadly accepted history? We hear this all the time uh, of the filibuster. And maybe you can talk a little bit about why your episode is called The Pirates of the Senate. And to do that, let's play a little clip from your show that I think answers at least the question about why all the Senate lore about the history of the storied filibuster is just fundamentally wrong. Let's have a listen. We'll start at the beginning. What does the Constitution say about the Senate? Okay, so let's turn back the clock to 1787. It's the starting point for a lot of our stories about American government. The year the Constitution was written. The year the founders laid out a vision for the country. And Senator Schumer's question suggests that it's the starting point for this story, too. The idea that the filibuster was part of the original design of the Senate, right? That the founders, in writing the Constitution, foresaw this. Former Republican Senator Pat Roberts, who was one of three members of the minority party asked to speak at the hearing, made that point outright. The founding fathers had the foresight to create an institution that was based not on majority rule, but where each state, regardless of size or population, had two senators to speak out on their behalf. It is that power to speak, the right to a limited debate, that is the hallmark of this body. Only problem is... It turns out that's not true. The filibuster doesn't actually appear anywhere in the Constitution. In fact, some of the founders seem to have been opposed to the idea of a filibuster, including Alexander Hamilton. We have many received wisdoms about the filibuster. Most of them turn out not to be true. The most persistent myth is that the filibuster was part of the Founding Fathers' constitutional vision for the Senate. It is said the upper chamber was Senators themselves have been instrumental in perpetuating the myths because it serves their political purposes and their policy aims to be able to rely on the notion of, of the filibuster. And so the more mythic it is, I think it's 
harder, uh, harder to reach and harder to take down. So that voice you were just hearing, that was Sarah Binder. She's one of the historians we talked to in the episode. She's a political scientist at GW University and the Brookings Institution. And what she's basically saying there is that senators themselves continue to propagate a certain version of the history because the reality is that it's kind of advantageous to you as a senator if you happen to be in the minority party at a particular moment in time. It kind of gives you some power back. And so depending on who's in power, depending on who's in the majority, that history will be heard from both Democrats and Republicans based around who's in the majority or not. And I think what's so fascinating, the thing that we dug into in the episode was that the real version of the story is it was not some master plan laid out in the Constitution. The filibuster doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution. For starters, that's kind of, I think, the first kind of myth busting that we do in the episode. So the reality is that the first constitutional convention in 1787, where the House and the Senate are getting together for the first time and kind of laying out their rule books, they have very similar rule books. And long story short, without getting into all the jargon, basically neither of them had a filibuster in place, but they did have something called a previous question motion in place. And what that basically meant was that there was a way for the simple majority in either the House or the Senate to stop conversation over a bill, get it to a vote, and move things along. The House has that to this day. The Senate got rid of it. And they got rid of it kind of over like a technical mistake. It just happened that Aaron Burr, who was vice president and leader of the Senate in the early 1800s, proposed, hey, we don't need this. You know, like we're all just friends here in the Senate. We can we can figure things out. We don't need this previous question motion. They got rid of the previous question motion, basically getting rid of any way to end debate. And in that space emerges the filibuster. So that's kind of the the technical history. But that's not as like mythological, I guess you could say, as the story that Sarah was describing in that clip. Um, And this will kind of get at the second part of your question, Dahlia, which is why is the episode titled Pirates of the Senate? We get to that around the mid-1800s. So the filibuster, even though there was kind of a space for unlimited debate between the early 1800s to the mid-1800s, it wasn't used that much. And the reasons are varied, but fundamentally, the Senate looked very different. The country looked very different. We were like in our early days, startup mode, much fewer states, therefore much fewer senators. And as a result, people generally didn't push debate to its very possible limit. But as the country started to grow, as more states started to be added to the country, and as more senators started to be added to the Senate, and they faced questions around how do you manage a growing country's finances? How do you manage growing partisanship? Now there are political parties. And how do you answer the question of what to do about slavery as you approach those really big questions, particularly that latter one, what to do about slavery? You start to see senators using the filibuster on the Senate floor and they start to not that frequently, but on occasion, go on and on speaking to block a bill. And this is when people in the Senate records start calling them filibusters. And the reference there is to Pirates, because that's also a word that was used to describe pirates who at the time were traveling around to Central America and the Caribbean and essentially like looting and getting spoils. So the idea was that just as pirates take 
a ship hostage, so too are these senators taking the Senate hostage. Rhonda, I was so struck when I was listening at the very beginning of the episode <laughs> where it's Aaron Burr who somehow is, you know, kind of central to the history. And there's all this talk of Burr and Hamilton and the framers. And it's so deeply ironic. I know you caught this, too, that folks who were going around shooting people, like actually shooting people, are the ones we now say, oh, there's this history of gentlemanly courtly tradition, you know, and civil disagreement. And baked into that, as you note in the podcast, is like these guys weren't actually paragons of civil discourse. (laughs) No, they were trying to figure things out, and they were sometimes doing some pretty suspect things in the course of figuring things out. And like you said, yes, Aaron Burr famously dueled with Hamilton and shot and killed Alexander Hamilton. This is just a year later. He's kind of talking before the Senate, making this like declaration of what he thinks it should be. I think what it speaks to, and and in a lot of our episodes where we're kind of looking at this really obviously pivotal moment in our country's history where these small group of elite white men are laying out a vision for the country, you realize they didn't have it all figured out. And they would acknowledge, I think, that they didn't have it all figured out. At moments, they probably thought we bit off more than we can chew, right? Because there, there were unanticipated problems coming up. The country was fundamentally different between 1776 and then 1876. I mean, the country looks radically different. And of course, in between that, you have a civil war and the emancipation of enslaved people. And that really, really shakes everything up in so many ways. And when it comes to the filibuster history, it shakes things up there because suddenly the filibuster can be a tool used by people who disagree very strongly about what to do with these new emancipated people. And so it becomes used more towards the end of the century than it had ever been before. For perspective, though, and I think this is important to point out, when we say it was used more, we're still talking like, you know, a couple filibusters every few years, maybe. At the time, we're talking about in the single digits in the late 1800s. And then it starts to increase into double digits, but still not where we are today. So we have hundreds of filibusters between the 1990s and now. It has been an exponential increase since around the late 1800s to today. I want to talk about where we started, which is that everybody points to this storied, lofty, aspirational, largely fake history. Um, But I think one of the claims that's made, and, and you make the point in the podcast, it's made on both sides, that this is protecting urgently important minority interests. Can you just give us an example in the category of both sides do it, to just give us a sense that it's not one side or the other that points to this vaunted history of, again, you know, courtly gentlemanly resolution of problems by way of this incredibly lofty protection of minority interests that both sides have really opportunistically used this language and this history in the past. I think that mission of protecting minority interests, which is kind of baked into all levels of American government, the idea of checks and balances is so strong and important. So I think there's a conflation then between, okay, that desire in our government to recognize that in a democracy, you have to have a counterbalance, right, to the majority view. 
And I think people take that and like they run with it and exploit it. And that has happened, particularly over the last 40 years of the history. But even before then, I think in more recent history, one of the examples that I think is interesting when thinking about revisions to the filibuster is the filibuster of presidential nominations. That's a really good example of how both parties, depending on whether they're in the majority or not, are sort of crying foul about trying to attack the filibuster and this great weapon and tool that we have to protect minority interests versus trying to get rid of it in order to further the majority's agenda. So you start to have the escalation around the conversation around presidential nominations happening during the Bush era when Republicans are in the majority and Democrats are saying, this is our constitutional right, putting forth this myth about the history and saying, this is the cooling saucer of democracy. Folks like Joe Biden were making these arguments at that time. And then when the Democrats are back in the majority during the Obama era, they're saying, we're not able to get anything done. We're not able to get our people passed. We're going to get rid of the filibuster for these presidential nominations. And Senator Mitch McConnell at the time was saying, no, this is a cooling saucer of democracy. You can't get rid of this. Our framers of the Constitution, they've set this forth to protect minority interests. And then when the Democrats are back in the minority and the Republicans are back in the majority, Senator Mitch McConnell gets rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations. So both sides did it in that case. And one of the things we found in looking at some of the archival records of the Senate and particularly one hearing where Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell were both speaking back in 2010, we found that there was an acknowledgement outright. Senator Schumer saying, I know I've been on the other side of this before. And I know that when I'm back in the minority, I might feel differently about the filibuster, right? And so I think there is a self-awareness, and yet the cycle continues. And so I, I, I think particularly in moments like the one we're in, where there is such intense division in our country and where there's no real space for compromise on any issue, it feels the filibuster becomes an even more important tool for the minority and an even more like thorn in your side if you're the majority. And so because of that, the tension is continuing to escalate around the filibuster. And you make this point, Rund, in the podcast, and you you made it earlier, that we are talking about a smattering of filibusters. It, it really only ramps up relatively recently. And I wonder if you would just talk for a minute about how it starts to just rocket launch a mechanism for minority rule to stymie these big majoritarian aims, first during World War I, and then again, the civil rights era, as you mentioned. And I want to play you a clip from the show where, you know, you're thinking through how it is that it comes to be really something that a useful go-to if you are a minoritarian interest in the Senate trying to scuttle legislation. There are some who are concerned that this is basically going to put the U.S. on a path to war because this will be seen as provocation. And then these ships will be attacked. And if our ships are attacked, then we will have no choice but to uh, to, to declare war and, and get involved. The armed ship bill got to the Senate floor and was filibustered by 11 senators who opposed U.S. entry into the war. 
what came to be called a, a gang of willful men. A little group of willful men. At least that's what Wilson called them. In a speech, Wilson let his anger be known, saying, quote, The Senate of the United States is the only legislative body in the world which cannot act when its majority is ready for action. A little group of willful men, representing no opinion but their own, have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. And he decided if he couldn't make any progress playing by the rules, then the rules needed to change. And he basically goes around the country um, pillaring the senators, right, to kind of fuse in the public's mind the filibuster um, and the issue of national security. So this is probably one of the first moments in American history where the public is kind of brought into the conversation around the filibuster. Because for so long, it was sort of something that was happening kind of like on a more technical level in the chambers of the Senate. And like now, there was a very public kind of litigation over the filibuster in the newspapers and discussions of it were happening not just within the halls of Congress. Similarly, at that time, the stakes were so high. I mean, imagine the world is at war. We're barreling towards that war. And some people are like, we're making a grave mistake. And other people are saying, no, we have to do this to protect our very being as a country. And again, this was a time of intense division. And so President Wilson, who's saying, we do need to sign this bill. We do need to get involved in the war. He's like, this is a life or death matter, basically, for the country. And so he's kind of pulling out all the stops and he's saying the filibuster in this case is actually potentially going to sink us. That's the argument he's making to the American people. And as a result, the filibuster comes under scrutiny by the public for maybe the first time. And people start to say, wait, this thing is is blocking us from being able to do the right thing and protect ourselves and protect the things that we believe in. And so as a result of this big public debate over the filibuster, you suddenly have what had been kind of called for by some senators for a few decades by this point. We finally have the implementation of something called the cloture rule. And the cloture rule Again, more technical jargon. This is why the filibuster is so inaccessible sometimes, right? Because there's a lot of technical jargon. But it's really important. The cloture rule, which we have today, although it's a little bit different today, but we'll get to that, basically allows a mechanism to stop a filibuster. Because remember, up until this point, it could go on and on and on forever. So the cloture rule is established. It basically says a set number of senators can end a filibuster. And By doing that, you basically say, all right, a filibuster is no longer unlimited debate. Like, you actually can have a limit to the debate. And that's a big deal. You know, that's a big deal because if you didn't have that, theoretically, there would be no mechanism to stop debate in the Senate at all. And then what happens as we move into the civil rights era is that filibusters start to be used even more. After emancipation, after the Civil War, we see filibusters start to be used more. In the civil rights era, that goes up even more. And essentially, Southern senators who are opposed to getting rid of Jim Crow era laws are really adamant in using the filibuster to block things like anti-lynching bills. 
they're using it as their stopgap because during this whole period, there's generally a more liberal majority in the Senate. And so the Southern senators are using this as their last ditch effort to preserve Jim Crow. And you see that all the way up to the voting rights bill in 1964. Lyndon Johnson brings forth the voting rights bill and there's over 50 days of filibustering to prevent the voting rights bill from passing. It does eventually pass, of course, as we all know, but it was a really, really difficult battle. And it was a really difficult battle because of the filibuster. And that, again, is a moment where there's a revision to the filibuster, intense division, intense disagreement. It's seen as an existential issue in that moment. People are saying, if the filibuster is preventing us from being the country that we need to be to move into the future and to embrace all of the people in our country, it needs to go or it needs to change. And so in that case, it changes. And so the cloture vote, the number of votes needed to end a filibuster is reduced slightly. And that's kind of where we're at today. We haven't seen a major change to the filibuster since then. Um, But the ante has been upped because now people aren't just saying reform the filibuster. They're saying get rid of the filibuster. They're saying we just need to to lose it altogether. Some people argue, why don't we go back to the previous question motion? Just have a simple majority. That's what the House does, you know? And so the conversation at each of these stages, really beginning with World War I, then in the civil rights era and to today, has continued to escalate, in part because the filibuster itself has continued to escalate in terms of its use and in terms of the way that senators are leaning on it more and more to stop anything from moving through the Senate. We've gotten to that kind of critical point again, where the combination of intense division and intense disagreement and feeling like this is kind of life or death for the country is is kind of what people feel is at stake again. And if history is any indication, that's a time when the filibuster is most likely to change in some way. Rhonda, I'm so curious before I let you go, you know, you've used the word life or death, you've used the word existential. I know, without a doubt, that was the framing around getting voting rights legislation passed this year, and and it failed. And I, and I love that threaded through all your answers today, you're talking about these are moments of intense self-reflection about what kind of country we want to be. Did you come away in this balancing act between this funny mythology about the Senate as the cooling saucer and the need for civil discourse and that it can't be raw power versus these really existential questions about majorities and the determination of who we are. Did you come away changing your mind? I think that what I didn't have an appreciation for at the beginning that I do have an appreciation for now is that Within the jargon of the Senate and the murkiness of it, there's actually really important and fascinating conversations to be had. There's fascinating stories within that and battles within that. And this is just a a broader reflection that I sometimes have coming out of when we've done episodes on the Supreme Court or, you know, things like that, where sometimes the mechanics of American government can feel very boring and not accessible. And I think that it's really important for us all to kind of get past that sometimes knee-jerk reaction I think we have to topics like that, because this is, this is fundamentally the stuff of our democracy. And once we were digging into the history 
I really gained an appreciation for, yes, this is complex, but like there's also a lot of space for deep reflection about who we are. Just even recognizing that, in my opinion, gets us to a better place in the conversation about the filibuster. Because I think right now it's so partisan and seeing beyond the immediate thing in front of us is very, very hard. And I think there's a lot of value to seeing this as part of a much bigger story, a much longer story, because it's really easy to chalk all of this up to modern day things like, well, it's social media, it's the divisiveness of the news these days and and politics these days. And that is a part of it. But actually, uh, it's not the whole story. Dorky, jargon-laden, ancient (laughs) systems is the stuff of dreams on this podcast. Uh, Rund Abdel Fattah is co-host and producer of Throughline. It's a podcast that explores the history of current events. The episode that we're discussing today is called Pirates of the Senate, and it is really well worth a listen if you want to hear a deep, smart, nuanced dive on the filibuster, its history, uh, and possibly its future. Thank you so, so much for being with us. Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's been great. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in and thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham and Shana Roth. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer and for the very last time, sadly, But with huge, immense gratitude and love, we will say that June Thomas is Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts, and we will miss you, June. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Mm -hmm.